Brandon School Division has said no to banning books, which triggered a discussion this morning about all the stuff kids are exposed to and the questions they might have for their parents. For example, remember your favorite song when you were a kid? Chances are it was naughty. Magic Mushrooms. After the Magic Mush bust on Friday, that's the new mushrooms store in Osborne Village, a lot of people are curious about mushrooms and microdosing, so we checked in with the experts, the Two Baked Girls podcast, Cupcake and Ray Ray. And our town in Ontario is telling its residents, okay, look, you can't put your basketball hoop at the edge of your driveway and hang it over the street. So that got us talking about what was your favorite street game when you were growing up? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Wednesday, May 24th podcast for The Start. It is Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. In case you are just tuning in and missed it off the top of Global News at 6 with Sarah McCarthy, Loren Brandon has said no. Yeah, they said no or don't, which was one of the signs that was super prevalent in the meeting last (laughs) night, looking at different uh, reflections on Twitter. Yeah, don't was the phrase that Brandon university put out after that we learned that there were a push by some delegates uh, a couple weeks ago to ban certain books in the brandon school division brandon university just came back with a response don't so that sign was prevalent last night in the meeting that they actually moved to a different room from different accounts they uh had to move it to a gym because there were so many people that wanted to step up and speak out to hundreds of people attending. And they voted six to one to not form this committee to review certain books within the division, Greg. And I dare say uh, it's a victory scene for many people, but it won't be the last time I think this conversation has to be had, unfortunately. Well, uh, I like to give credit where credit is due. And uh, I'm going to give my time, my words, and allow the Premier of Manitoba to speak on my behalf. I've said this before and I'll say it again, we're past that as a society, the banning of books. While there is no book ban currently in place, I can assure you that we will consistently and constantly be monitoring the issue. I don't need to say anything else. I agree 100% with the Premier. Your question of the day, by the way, should provincial federal governments prevent schools from banning books? It was a close one. Uh, 52% say no and 48% say yes. Loren. What's behind that, do we think? Is it the, because, is it the content of certain books? Is it certain books that are bugging people? Is it that we actually feel that there should be some sort of say by trustees to decide what our kids read, that we don't put the faith in the librarians who have been doing this and the schools for dozens upon dozens of years? I'm, I'm genuinely curious what the weigh-in is on that and why there would be, that's almost a split. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was surprised with that result, actually, a little bit. I, I'm trying to, I'm just trying to figure out what it is. That's books that are available in the library the same way there's content available on your TV or content available on the phone. And you have the faith that your kid is going to ask questions when they need to ask questions. And they don't, they might go looking for answers in the library or the TV or the internet on their phone. But you, we're all there to supposedly watch that and decide ourselves if our kids are watching, reading, or doing the right things. No? Uh, yeah, well, I'm I mean, just I'm, I'm just trying to figure out. I'm just talking. I'm trying to talk through what the consternation is. 
Well, I think, and that to the premier's point, not to belabor it, we've had these discussions. We've decided that there are people. I thought there were people that we trusted, that we trusted to make right. these decisions. As I, as we we discussed uh, last week, uh, you know, tens of millions of books uh, been printed since the invention of the printing press. Obviously, not all of them fit in every single library on the planet. So decisions have been made since the invention of the library or the creation of libraries around the world about which books go in which libraries and which sections of of libraries and and people decide which material makes sense for the libraries uh, based on the clientele of said library. And so I've chosen to trust those individuals to, to do their jobs and and it, it's it's worked uh, just fine uh, for me as a parent and as a student for for uh, forty plus years. So and I'm fine with it. And if your kid happens to read something in the library that you, as a parent, find questionable, that well, at the very least, it starts with a conversation. And we that can happen whether it's books or whether it's you, Loren. You mentioned content on television or even you know. Music, you know, what if your kid asks you a question about some song they heard on the radio and you brought one up uh, as I look at the lyrics here? <laughs> um, I mean, it's an, it's certainly an interesting con. It's, it's, it's an interesting concept of a song, but I would imagine when your child asks a question, what's this uh, about killing my ex? Well, it was more just because he's singing along. He's 10 years old. You have radio on changing around to different stations and you're listening to music. Or perhaps this was something someone loaded up on a phone, but I think it was just playing uh, on the station and we're driving along and I hear him singing and I go, and I'm singing too. <laughs> like you're not paying attention to the lyrics, which can happen. And I, and then all of a sudden I was like, hang on, what is this about? And then he's, and then he says something about, you know, it's about this. Why does this guy want to, what does this girl want to kill her ex? So the song is by Za. Is that right? Uh, Kill Bill. SZA. Sorry. See, I don't even know that. I'm not cool. The song is about Kill Bill called Kill Bill, and it's this person who says she'd rather be in jail than be alone and so contemplates killing the ex and the new uh, person that they've taken up with. And so you're you in those moments as a parent, you think, huh, okay, do we understand what this song is about? Are you processing the lyrics? Do you get it? Is it just a fun, catchy tune? And it's, it's the same thing that would go along with they came home with a book, came home with a comment from a friend, came home with a TV show that they wanted to talk about. For, since the dawn of time, Greg, we've all been consuming media that leads to questions and and parents having those conversations with their kids. There have been all sorts of controversies with regard to uh, lyrics in music, uh, censorship as it pertains to music. Uh, you may, is it Two Live Crew had an album way back in the day that the uh, sure. American government tried to censor and then it led to a rating system uh, with regard to explicit lyrics uh, in the United States, and of course, we have the rating system with regard to movies in uh, in North America, and I guess that's around the world. But the idea is that there are people who put these ratings on these movies, on this mu- music, and then it's up to either adults to consume them or for the adults that have children in their lives to work with them to decide what's appropriate for them and whether or not they decide to consume something that's available to them. I, it, it's not that complicated in my mind. 
You can feel free to weigh in at 204-780-6868. And again, our question of the day at cjob.com. Should provincial or federal governments prevent schools from banning books? 52% said no. 48% said yes. And yeah, even just on another quick note on the subject of songs. Like I remember uh, when the song Pumped Up Kicks by Foster the People came out. It's a really catchy, fun little tune. That was used even in in like feel good tele. I remember it being used in Cougar Town. It was a it meant as a feel good. And then I actually listened to the lyrics, like all the other kids <laughs> with the pumped up kicks. You better run, better run, outrun my gun. Like it's a song about oh. a school shooting. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah, I'm just looking at the lyrics now. You're right. That is a dark song. I will. I'm not ashamed to admit Madonna's "Papa Don't Preach." I probably had been singing that three years before I realized what that was about. The, the you know an actual baby and anyway same here like, like, I, mean, I just I, I just had a, I, I'm just like jamming along yeah. and then I'm suddenly I'm a teenager later in life and I'm like huh, it's pretty deep this song <laughs> I've been I've been a proud member of the Kiss Army since I was six years old yeah, singing no songs, idea what the songs like are about. songs like Love Gun. <laughs> At six and seven years old. Dare okay? I Google the lyrics to that? Go right ahead. Oh, God. What what might even come up on? Oh, I hope the overlords don't have some sort of alarm on my computer right now. <laughs> or pretty much every song ever written by ACDC. Yeah. Yes. No insinuations, no innuendo in any rock and roll songs at all. Oh, gosh. Yeah, this one's going for it. <laughs> In the meantime, right now we want to talk, Loren, about derelict buildings. This has been a huge conversation and I think really driven by CGOB and Global News and the people and the listeners that we have wanting to see something done in the city about derelict and vacant buildings. And so now we know the city of Winnipeg has a new approach, a couple of new guidelines that they're going to try and implement. We get more from Global's Rosanna Hempel. So it actually lets you have a look at where the fires are located. Tracy Ball regularly checks Pulse Point for fires in her neighbourhood, a habit that started after the empty house next to hers engulfed in flames last August. You watch the area burn and you, it's, it's, very, it's, it's horrendous to watch it in an evening and you hear the sirens. She worries another vacant residence on her street will meet the same fate. I really want this dealt with. I want to be able to look out my window and not want to close the blinds on all of it. It's a widespread issue that haunts many areas of the city. Just after midnight Tuesday, Winnipeg Fire Paramedic Service crews came out to put a blaze at this building on William Avenue for the fourth time in the last year. After introducing bylaw amendments making property owners responsible for the firefighting bill, the public service is back with recommendations that Mayor Scott Gillingham hopes will help boost housing and put an end to neighbourhood blight. The problem has grown from 471 buildings in 2018 to 685 such buildings today. Among the proposed changes, enhanced boarding and security, including cameras, for which property owners will be billed if they don't comply, a fast-tracked residential demolition permit process, and more fees and inspections, with the help of four new bylaw enforcement officers. While this longtime Spence neighborhood resident says he'd back streamlined demolition, he doubts more fines will incentivize owners. How do you get somebody to care when they don't care? And Ball agrees city measures need more teeth. 
Alongside community activist Sal Burroughs, who welcomes the city's announcement, both say prevention should be a bigger part of the conversation. We could turn around and offer the owners of vacant houses and say, okay, here's a $50,000 forgivable loan. Fix your place up. The reactionary is not doing us any good because by then the damage is done. If the recommendations get committee and council approval, they could come into effect by summer. Rosanna Hempel, Global News. How do you get someone to oh. care? That, what a line. What a line. I, it's true. Wow, that really jumped out for me, Loren. And yesterday afternoon, Scott Gillingham joined the news. And here I am uh, on this Tuesday morning agreeing with our political leaders. Uh, I think there's something uh, going going wrong today. So uh, you might uh, maybe I should buy a lottery ticket today. But here's, here's Scott Gillingham uh, talking about how these abandoned structures are burdened on responsible homeowners. Property owners in Winnipeg who take care of their properties shouldn't have to live next to a vacant building for for months and months on end or there's cases where you know buildings have been uh, have been boarded up or, or even demolished and um, and and you know the rubble sits there for for, for months on end. This is what we don't want. We want to reduce neighborhood blight. We want to make the community safer. We want the neighborhoods to look good. And we ultimately want these sites and these properties to be redeveloped into housing. Hallelujah. Now you can say that. Will these new, if implemented, uh, amendments to the bylaw have that ultimate result? I guess we can hope. I guess there may be some reason to believe that and, and to imagine that these will work, Loren. But uh, we've got to do something. This this whole never-ending conversation is uh, it, it's time for it to be done and for action to be taken and pa- action that turns into. Uh, into a, a change in, in what we're seeing on, on several streets, several neighborhoods in our, in our community. Yeah. And I think, you know, that, that one listener or the one person in that story that Rosanna had stuck out to both of us, how do you make a person care who doesn't care it is important, but let's see what these do. Like, you know, what timeline would we like to give it as a city of Winnipeg to see if this, these new measures result in any change? Circle back, say, in September and see if we knock down the number of derelict homes on that list. And by knock down, I mean just scratch them off the list because they've been taken care of. Have we seen more or less fires? Uh, and then what did the residents think? Because Gilliamham said yesterday that these abandoned structures, you know, really, when you think about the Tracy Ball in that story, who's been advocating for months, years to do something, it's a burden on the responsible homeowner property owners in Winnipeg who take care of their properties shouldn't have to live next to a vacant building for for months and months on end or there's cases where you know buildings have been uh, have been boarded up or, or even demolished and um, and and you know the rubble sits there for for, for months on end. This is what we don't want. We want to reduce neighborhood blight. We want to make the community safer. We want the neighborhoods to look good. And we ultimately want these sites and these properties to be redeveloped into housing. And really quickly here, I want to play this clip from the mayor here because he says one of the big changes which could make the difference has to do with what you're allowed, what you need to do before getting a demolition permit currently. Well, one of the things I think that is really important is we are bringing in um, a way to streamline the demolition permit process. Right now, as it stands, before you can demolish your building, you have to have, as a property owner, plans, uh, building plans, and, and show the city what you plan to build once you demolish the building. Well, sometimes uh, you've got vacant, we have vacant properties that are problematic properties, and the property owner doesn't have any plans to build. What we want to do is to say, okay, 
you can get a demolition permit without plans to rebuild at this point, and that can go to a decision that can be made by the director of the, uh, of the department. That would make it easier and faster for people to get demolition permits to get problematic buildings demolished if they're not going to be or they're beyond the state of being repaired. This will make it easier to get uh, buildings demolished. And I, I believe it is, uh, it is better to have an empty lot with you know, sod on it or grass on it than to have a problematic and, uh, and dangerous building. And I believe the bylaw was amended originally to eliminate people tearing down buildings to create an empty lot. And that empty lots were a bigger concern than anything else. Well, now we're reaching a a point in time where empty derelict buildings are causing a larger problem than vacant lots. So uh, that's why it's sort of a, a, a backtrack on something that was changed years and years ago. And uh, I I think this might uh, make a big difference, Brett. It is Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. We've got tickets for Flatlanders Beer Fest happening June 2nd and 3rd at Canada Life Centre. And it has to do, Greg, with a story out of Tilsonburg, Ontario. What did you discover is happening there? Yes. Yeah, so before I looked, uh, before I did anything, I looked up Tilsonburg, Ontario on a map. I'd never, ever heard of it. It's in southwestern Ontario. And so I don't know about your neighborhoods, but I know on my bay, some of the kids, some of the parents have set up for their kids their basketball nets right on the edge of the street because maybe the street is a better surface in terms of dribbling and playing basketball. Uh, I see that all over the city. In Tilsonburg, bylaw says that's illegal. There was a school bus that clipped one of uh, these basketball nets that were, quote-unquote, too close to the road. And you can argue whether or not uh, that's a suitable spot for a basketball hoop or not. Uh, Lots of reasons to argue on both sides, I suppose. Anyway, Brett, I brought that to to your attention just because... This is one of those things, one of these discussions that uh, leads to the whole question about should we be doing everything for, you know, that we can to get our kids out of the house? Where's the line on these uh, different rules and, and bylaws and which ones are on the books that should be enforced and not enforced? And then you took it to another place. Well, I wanted, I just got me thinking about street games. What's your favorite street game? 204-780-6868. Did you play street hockey as a kid? Did you play basketball or football or baseball or whatever? Hopscotch. I don't know. Let us know. Tell us a story for a chance to win those beer fest tickets. Cameron Poitras back in action. Let's start with you, sir. Well, like on the sidewalk, I, I don't know how many times I've done like hopscotch. I never understood the rules. I have no idea Same how here. to play. No idea what the rules are. I think you make some sort of, uh, you make a block. This one goes for two. This one's one. And you throw a stone and you, you get to the, I don't, no idea how to play it. Absolutely no idea. I must have done it how many times? I have no idea. Four square, I've done that before. No clue how to play that either. Absolutely no idea. Yeah, I didn't either. Just like jumping. Yeah, I just like to jump. <laughs> so I, I ran no into other, hops yeah, no this other. weekend and I did it. And then I was like, what is the format here? Right, left, <laughs> jump, jump. I just did this on Sunday. Yeah, and then how do you, like, what do you restart? Or like, what is there, points? I have no idea. I have no, no clue. <laughs> like, I finished it, Cam, and I looked around waiting for someone to, like, tell me, like, I had successfully, you did it. You know, like you climb the mountain, but I don't know. I, I don't have a hot clue. I have, I have, I've, this is, I have no proof to, or uh, this is, this I have no proof to – I don't think that 5% of people who play or have ever done a hopscotch know <laughs> the rules of the game. They just do it. 
I don't. I think maybe five percent know the rules. If there are any, I'm not sure there are. If I were to try it now, I'd probably tear my Achilles tendon. Uh, Sarah McCarthy, what about you? Well, I also like to jump, so just keep jumping. But this one has no rules. Just jump rope. Just jump rope. Simple jump yeah, rope. Yeah, simple. And you can do doubles. My sister would jump in with me, and maybe she did get her tooth knocked out in that situation, but <laughs> it was fun overall. And then otherwise, How? just. <laughs> Um, just the rope, knocked heads, whatever, you know, young kids. She knocked her tooth out with a rope? No, our heads must have collided. (laughs) (laughs) Must have collided. Uh, Must have, yeah. Can you do double dutch? Double dutch? I don't, I'm pretty out of practice now, but 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 back back then, yeah. yeah. I could never do double dutch. But other than that, just street hockey with the neighborhood, neighborhood kids were always, was always a fun time. Did you ever have songs, like chants that you would do, skipping rope? Not Uh, really. We just got like one or uh, like count to jump in and that's about it. Then just, did you have songs? Well, I just was thinking now as you're talking, we had one that was like Elvis Presley. Do you want to date me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can do the wiggle. I can do the twist. And you, Elvis Presley was long gone by the time I was. I don't even know why that would have been a song. That's great. And I don't even know how you got out. Like if I think you had to keep going, bet you anything you can't do this and you just count, right? Yeah. How you got. And then you would invite someone in right and then I, I don't know what did Elvis have to do with that uh, shrink your hips baby now <laughs> yeah, Forte what about you oh me and my friends we'd always play on the street didn't know didn't wasn't like a specific game like we would you know play frisbee or just throw the throw the ball see how far we could throw the ball down the street yeah and oh there's times even like we be like 20 21 we'd still be playing on the street like you don't get old from playing from the street, it's a, it's a lot of fun. Uh, we also played frisbee in a parking lot. Like we used to work at Little Caesars, finished our shift, and uh, we just decided to throw the frisbee around at like twelve o'clock at night. Yeah, <laughs> just the most random time, most random thing to do. Did Eight. you ever land a football in the back of somebody's windshield uh, or on somebody's rear windshield on the street? No, but we lost balls in neighbors' backyards and whatnot. Of course, <laughs> on the roofs. On the roofs. Yeah. Yes, on the roof. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we used to we used to try to throw the ball over our own houses and see if we can uh, catch the ball on the other side. And <laughs> never really worked. Any I over? Isn't that what you'd yell? Like any any I over? Do you chuck it over? Oh I'm just wow! Making up chance. <laughs> no. I think I'm just making them up. Yeah, was it an, something? Andy Annie or anti over? Over? Annie Annie over? I don't even know what I was yelling. Yeah, I remember you knew the that. ball no. was coming over to the other side. Yeah, you had yeah, to be there to catch that's it. Right. We just called it throw ball. Or just watch out. <laughs> <laughs> throw ball. <laughs> Greg, what about you? What did you play? Oh, everything. We baseball. Football, uh, street hockey. Uh, my dad organized the Golden Street Olympics one year for all the kids on our uh, on our block, and and we had a six, seven, eight events. And he was out there timing and measuring our jumps and everything. Cool. Cor- Corinne Peters won everything. She was such an athlete. Oh my goodness, she was so good at everything: baseball, all the running. But uh, we had a legendary. Hockey tournament in the back lane on Golding Street called the Hammer Cup. We were studying Hannibal in uh, geography, and his nickname apparently was the Hammer, and so it was named in honor of Hannibal. And I ended up working in the building for about six, seven months in the building that we played this uh, legendary street hockey tournament behind. And I bet you there are still two dozen tennis balls up on the roof of that building from that legendary street hockey tournament. We want right now to discuss ambulances, Loren. 
Yeah, so it's it, this first part's a bit complicated. So you have ambulances and they come to you and you would think that's a total provincial responsibility, except for they're run by the city of Winnipeg. Winnipeg Fire Paramedic Service operates the ambulance. The province is supposed to f- pay for them. The, there's been a funding model that's had some struggles over the years. And at one thirty today, we're going to learn more about maybe any changes that are coming to it. But specifically, what we might be learning and what we hope to learn is whether or not there will be any new ambulances coming to Winnipeg. Winnipeg has been short for years now. We talked to Chief uh, Christian Schmidt about that just a few months ago. But the fact that Winnipeg needs seven to ten more ambulances to bring wait times below the target of nine minutes or less. So right now, wait times for ambulances in Winnipeg, they've gone up nearly five minutes over the last four or five years, and it can take up to 20 minutes from one to arrive. And so they've been asking, the city has been asking, the union's been asking, lots of people have been saying, it's it's not just you know this agreement and the money that we need, Greg, we need more resources. And so the big question today will be, will they get that? There has been a a lot of back and forth between the city, shared health and the province with regard to, you know, providing, continuing to provide service. I think at one point uh, when he was uh, mayor, uh, Brian Bowman suggested that maybe the city would just stop providing the service as a bargaining tool, I suspect, was that threat. And so when we have announcements like this or pending announcements like this, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing in my mind. It means cooler heads have prevailed. And hopefully, Brett, uh, the city gets resources that it needs in order to provide the service that's required for, for folks that, you know, when you call 911 and you're looking for an ambulance, we've heard stories, stories of people, you know, having firefighters waiting with them for 30 minutes, an hour, two hours uh, when they need an ambulance and there just isn't one available. It's, it's, not, it's not been a good situation. And if they get the ambulances, would, will they have the, re- the staff, the resources? It's a great question. Yeah, I, I think that'll be the next part of it because we know that there is a shortage there as well, particularly, you know, in rural Manitoba, I know that's a big deal, but there's also just a people resource issue here right now. And we know even just the injuries that paramedics are sustaining on the job, the job is getting harder than I think perhaps it's more ever been. Dangerous. There was more dangerous with the calls they respond to that they might, might, you know, get a call to an area and think, I don't even want to go in there based on what might have gone down in terms of if it's a response to crime. So there's all sorts of headaches right now for paramedics. But I do hope that at 1.30 today, it's a joint meeting with, again, uh, the Premier, Mayor Scott Gillingham, the Chief Operating Officer of Shared Health, and Christian Schmidt, the Chief of the Winnipeg Fire Paramedic Services. That's the four big, the four big ones. I'd like to think there's something big coming for them. Okay, and you can weigh in at 204-780-6868, as you have been doing as well, on the the Brandon Book Ban decision. Brandon School Division, books with LGBTQ2 content are staying in libraries is part of, that are part of the Brandon School Division, uh, because this is something that had been brought, it was a motion that was brought forward earlier this month to ban books containing such themes, claiming they were harmful for children, but the Brandon School Division has said no to that. And uh, interesting feedback on this. Uh, For example, Rick uh, emailed me. I don't know if he emailed the two of you, but he's just curious about, you know, the pushback that we've seen over the years on books by, for example, Twain or Roald Dahl, for example, in recent, was it last year that some of his books were touched up? to have more inclusive language. So it's uh, something we're seeing, I guess, uh, on both sides of the fence. 
Yeah, it is. It was Royal Dahlia, You're right. They they massaged some of the words, and then I think they went back on the decision. Did they not? The public. I'm trying to look that up now. The publisher they, said they were going to change it. I think they published like a legacy. I think they, they like a legacy series or something like that. I, I don't know if it was of the wording, but uh, they, they were so they were, you could get the untouched original collection and then the uh, the updated, more inclusive version. Right. Because there's the argument that the work should be read in their original form, and then if you have issues with them as the person reading them or the teacher, then maybe that also opens a conversation about different things. There's certain books I've actually read to my kids. I don't know about you, Greg, where it was one that I loved, you know, growing up, and then you're starting to read it to them, and you think, huh, (laughs) this is not not a good thing to say, or that word shouldn't be in here, and you didn't realize it maybe as an eight-year-old you know, 35 years ago, but you realize now, and then you decide as a parent in that moment, am I going to read this and talk to them about that? Or do I skip it and replace it with something else? And so you're doing that kind of censorship, I think, in your home sometimes, depending on who you are and what you're reading or consuming. Always reading it, always read it, reading it as uh, printed, and then having the discussion about it as to why that language, you know, isn't used today, why we've evol- evolved why languages evolve, why, why words, you know, think about sure. what, think about, you know, uh, I think we all had grandparents who did eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Yep. And I had a grandparent mm. once upon a time who used one word and uh, very quickly that word was replaced because my mom jumped out of her chair. I'll never, I was maybe four years old and I can remember her. We don't use that word in our house. And uh, so it was a, a tiger by the toe. Yeah. You know, things change over time. Uh, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Hey, Tom, have you ever been to Tilsonburg? Tilsonburg? My back still aches <laughs> when I hear that word. Come on. <laughs> Johnny! Thank Stop you. it, Tom! Jeff McKay. Cash. Oh, well. Jeff McKay pointing out that Stompin' Tom Connors did a song about Tilsonburg, and we are talking about Tilsonburg, <laughs> Ontario this morning, which is a place I have never heard of. It's in southwestern Ontario. Greg, you've never heard of it. Lorraine, had you heard of Tilsonburg? Well, I clearly thought that was Johnny Cash. I shouldn't be asked any questions today about anything. <laughs> well, so, to be fair, they, they, I, I well, can see the I just heard a twang, and then I just yelled out the one name that made sense. Like, come on. But we're talking about Tilsonburg. No. Uh, I actually think I might have been through Tilsonburg just working in southern Ontario. Uh, but we're talking about it because that's the community where they have a bylaw that they're trying to enforce on people leaving basketball nets in use at the end of their driveway. Uh, school bus has clipped a couple of these basketball nets, and so they're trying to get parents to remove them, and that has us talking those street games we all loved. What does Henry have for us, Greg? Oh, <laughs> lots of memories uh, on this street once upon a time. Tying in street games and beer, I can remember a while ago. Yes, a long time ago, uh, Henry, in Calgary, a street called Electric Avenue, lined with bars and patios. They would dump sand on the street, make beach volleyball courts. You could participate in the tournament or just sit back with a cold one on the patio and watch or do both, which was usually the case for us fun times. 11th Ave. Electric Avenue, uh, legendary back in the back in the nineties in Calgary. Did you ever join in the, the beach volleyball fun? I was never there for the beach volleyball oh. fun, but uh, this this sounds like uh, maybe something we could bring to Portage Avenue. Oh, for a weekend. No, let's close it down. 
Yeah, I'll do it. Beach volleyball, uh, beach volleyball tournament, Portage Avenue from uh, Saturday morning till Sunday afternoon. Who's that in? would be fun. And let's be clear, there's not that many cars on a Sunday moving through there that this couldn't happen. They can go let's around. Start the campaign. You can go around. Can go around. Just go, just go around. <laughs> just do the whole like go around. You would for Headlights. road hockey. <laughs> Car, <laughs> go around. Yeah, that'd be uh, fun. Um, I, I I never did uh, get to see, uh, when. When did Electric Avenue stop being a thing? Early, I want to say early 2000s. By the, yeah, it would have been by, by the time I moved to Calgary the second time. I think it was sort of, it was had fizzled. and But it was for a solid decade, it was a place to be. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like it. Doesn't St. John's, Newfoundland have something like that oh, too? I can't think is of the street. St. John's yes. or is it? Is the, yeah. yeah. What's, what's the street, Loren? Johnny Cash Street. I don't oh, know. Oh, come right on. Now. And what I'm saying, for some reason, White, White Ave, Ave in Edmonton. Edmonton. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's a little more sophisticated than Electric Avenue was. Okay. Like Electric Avenues was like, you okay, Loren? You drinking there? Is everything all right? <laughs> I just dropped that. I just, honestly, I'm not on the ball today. I was trying to Google something and then like I just, I get so into a rabbit hole or down a rabbit hole that I just forget what I'm currently doing. Is it Henry Street? That doesn't sound George right. Street. George Street, that's correct. Highways across Manitoba will be getting facelifts over the coming months, and that will come with more traffic delays. Yeah, yesterday, reconstruction of the Trans-Canada Highway at Provincial Road 207, also known as Deacon's Corner, ramped up. Saw the shutdown of the intersection with flag people controlling traffic for much of the day. Tegan Rasha of Global News tells us how much money the province is spending this construction season and just how many projects are on the books. From busy intersections to rural areas, highways across the province are getting fixed up. The reason why we're doing a lot of this infrastructure investment is not only for economic development, but the number one is safety for all Manitobans. The province announced a multi-year infrastructure strategy back in March, with more than 800 capital projects planned for the next five years. Over $500 million worth of work is expected for this year. Over $500 million, yeah, that's what we have scheduled for, for uh, different highways, including uh, Highway 75, Highway 6, Highway 10, uh, number one. Along with all these improvements, also comes traffic delays. Manitobans can expect province-wide construction to last into the fall, meaning summer road trips could take a bit longer. We're doing infrastructure investments in, in the parks, but we're also doing uh, infrastructure highways going in, uh, towards the parks so that Manitobans will see some inconvenience, uh, I always say uh, short-term pain for long-term gain. The government plans to put at least $500 million per year into Manitoba highways until 2028. Tegan Rasha, Global News. So, of course, bearing the brunt of the impact of both lousy roads and the projects required to improve our roads and highways would likely be the folks within the trucking industry. Aaron Delinick is the executive director of the Manitoba Trucking Association. Good morning, Aaron. Good morning. I'm wondering, for as many uh, complaints that you might get from some of your drivers about the conditions of our roads, do you get an equal number of complaints surrounding uh, the construction, or is that sort of a grin and bear it situation for most? Uh- I would say it's a Grin and Barrett situation. We welcome the investment and understand that in order for the investment to take place, we need to uh, deal with the delays. We heard the minister there talk about safety being a priority. That has to be your first priority as well, Aaron. Absolutely. Whenever we look at infrastructure investment, safety is number one, efficiency number two, definitely. 
So then if you could prioritize one or two major infrastructure deficiencies, what might they be? One of the deficiencies within our province, um, I think the perimeter uh, and the work that's going on the perimeter is number one. It's our busiest highway in the province. From there, I would say access on the Trans-Canada. Uh, you look at intersections like Highway 16 and the Trans-Canada Highway. It's an at-grade controlled crossing. Um, that could use improvement. And then, uh, you know, infrastructure to go around maybe Headingley or the St. Norbert Bypass, which was announced some time ago. Aaron, did you, uh, sorry, did you say the 16 and the number one changes there? Yes. Yeah, so a few years ago, I know there was talk of the Trans-Canada and the number 16 of putting a roundabout there, and I believe it's still on the books in some fashion. Do you have any sense of what might be coming, whether it's this year or in future years, to that corner? And for those who don't use it, you know, that's the choice where you're making to get on the Yellowhead and maybe go northwest through Gladstone, Nipah, onto Saskatoon and Edmonton, or heading straight west on the Trans-Canada through Brandon, Verdon, and then into Saskatchewan. What What is still coming there as far as you know? So my understanding is that project for the roundabouts no longer on the books. Our industry raised a number of concerns with safety specifically, uh, the size of the truck combinations that need to run through it and the ability to maintain it in the winter time uh, would make it extremely challenging to navigate. And one of the requirements for the roundabout was if you're moving a truck through it on the, I guess, the median lane, you were expected to drive over the curb. And uh, that sounds like it's not a big deal, but, you know, as drivers, we're taught not to drive over the curb. So um, we, we thought there was a lot of safety concerns with the roundabout and we were, quite frankly, opposed to it. So my understanding is it's no longer on the books as it sits. I was hearing from uh, one of my good friends in Brandon who drives between Winnipeg and Brandon, uh, Brandon and Kenora, that 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 temporary roundabout just west of Portage La Prairie right now is causing some problems, particularly if, uh, you know, if you've got tandem trailers. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, long combination vehicles uh, operate up and down the Trans-Canada in and out of Portage La Prairie, and they require additional turning radiuses that, you know, sometimes smaller roundabouts, uh, make more challenging to navigate. So what are some of the projects that, uh, you know, that you are excited to see completed? You mentioned the the perimeter. Brett and I have been tooting the horn of the perimeter and the number of traffic signals, like a lot of Manitobans for years and years now. So it'll be exciting to, to see the St. Mary's uh, go away in the, in the next uh, handful of months here. And then uh, St. Anne's. Anything else that, that we should see on the perimeter? You mentioned that St. Norbert bypass. That was on the books, uh, and then the, 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 the current government cancelled it pretty quickly after getting into government seven years ago. Would you like to, to see that, and why would it be a, an important project, Darren? Just because if you look at you know St. Norbert, we don't have a real good separation between traffic and commercial and even residential. There's a school right on uh, Pemina Highway as you go through St. Norbert, and it goes down to a, a very slow speed. So uh, all those considerations, it would be a, a safer and a more efficient route to, quite frankly, bypass St. Norbert. And I think probably less frustration for the people that live there. Yeah, when you talk about bypassing or having better routes for trucks, you know, I don't know if you caught it in our news run, Aaron. 
um, that there are signs up now in downtown Hamilton, Ontario, for a new bylaw that bans rigs with more than four axles. And they're trying to prevent, you know, big, heavy trucks from going down certain streets. And so we've talked about that before in Winnipeg, uh, you know, even just through St. Norbert, having a separate route for trucks or maybe through the downtown, finding other ways. What issues would that pose here? Or do you think there's room for that in some areas to say trucks shouldn't go there? They should have their own route. Well, it's hard to compare Hamilton to Winnipeg. Hamilton has freeways. Winnipeg doesn't. There are ways to bypass downtown in Hamilton. In Winnipeg right now, there's not. We don't have an inner ring road. There is no other way to move traffic from the St. Boniface Industrial Park to the west part of our city. So that alone, I don't think that's reasonable. And quite frankly, if we take big trucks off of some of the primary routes in downtown, what that does is it puts more smaller trucks on the on the road, less efficient. There's more trucks, more traffic. Um, it might seem like a, a great idea, but the, the nature of it as well is, let's be realistic. Trucks serve all of those commercial buildings downtown. They all need deliveries for food, for supplies, and you know removing them does not allow them to serve the the businesses that exist downtown. Well, yeah, I mean, even this building just as a microcosm here at 201 Portage, it's like its own little micro economy. If you go out back at any given time, especially in the first half of the day, there there could be two, three, four, five trucks all dropping stuff off. Exactly. And you think about restaurants, you think about the, the high-rise commercial buildings downtown, they all have loading docks, right? You think about... Uh, the arena, you know, there's concerts and we've all seen the lineup of, tr- lineup of trucks that line up to support those concerts and move equipment in and out of the arena. So, Aaron Dolinick, Executive Director of the Manitoba Trucking Association. Thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate the time. Thank you for having me. Okay. Have a great day. Earlier, Cam Poitras was suggesting maybe 5% of the planetary population actually knows the rules to hotch- <laughs> hopscotch. And, Loren, you played it on the weekend, and you're like, well, this is fun, but what am I doing here? Well, it was, you know, like the kids will put it out in sco- uh, chalk on different streets you walk through throughout Clear Lake. And so you, you can't not see it and not just attempt to do it. Yeah. But as I'm doing it, I'm like, what is, you know, is it one leg, two legs, six? Like, what am I supposed to do a flip at the end? Like, I have no clue. Well, Laura says, my recollection of the rules of hopscotch. The stone had to be thrown and landed on the squares in sequence. Then you have to jump on one leg without landing on the square where the stone is, keeping balance and not touching lines. Whoever gets all nine squares first wins. Sometimes the throwing is harder. The throwing, and then you got to bend over and pick it up. You have to pick it up on one leg? pick up the rock on one leg. Oh, on man. your way back, right? So if you throw it, say, on two, you hop on one, you hop over two to three, four, and then you do the kind of the double move and then the single and the double and the single. And then you got to spin around and then you come back and you got to pick up the rock on the way back. On one leg. Yeah, I think oh. so. Yeah. I'm just thinking what? about it. It makes me want to topple over in my chair, yeah. the, the lack of balance that I have. So thank you for that, Laura. Uh, I kind of want to go try it now. But keep those stories coming for a chance to win. We're going to pick a winner at 9.15. In the meantime, producer Jeff Forche and Greg Mackling take us to the ice. The last of three Winnipeg hockey teams bowed out of the playoffs last week in the Winnipeg ice. It was a great run for the junior team and something Paul Edmonds himself enjoyed, especially based on the history the WHL has in our city. There is no measurement to gauge how deeply rooted the Western Hockey League is in our community. 
Even though the city didn't have a team for decades until the arrival of the Winnipeg Ice four years ago, the WHL has always been part of our hockey fabric. Whether that's been local players pursuing their major junior dreams via the Dubs path, or the league providing opportunities for Winnipeggers to be coaches, trainers, and even media members, the reciprocity between the city and the league is and remains vast. So when True North Sports and Entertainment provided Canada Life Centre for the ice to play their two home games in the league's championship final a week and a half ago, it was not shocking that nearly 11,000 people attended, yours truly included. From there, a majority of us followed the team on television as they played games 3-5 through from Seattle where Winnipeg's tremendous season ended in a disappointing finish in a series loss, four games to one, to the now Memorial Cup-bound Thunderbirds. But the point is, after using WHL substandard facilities at the U of M for the past few seasons in what was supposed to be a bridge to a new and significant home for the team, it was great to see the WHL on a grand stage again in our city. And the hockey that was played under that spotlight, nothing short of exceptional. In fact, for a fleeting weekend since their arrival, there was a buzz around town about the team which boasts Winnipeggers James Patrick as its head coach, Carson Lambos as its captain, plus countless other quality hockey people both on and off the ice that call Winnipeg home. The unfortunate part is the future of the organization in Winnipeg is unclear, and using downtown as their home venue permanently to alleviate that uncertainty probably isn't an option. What happens with the ice this offseason is open to speculation from many sides. But what should be noted from their brief move downtown was their product is entertaining, highly skilled, and sellable. But here in Winnipeg, we've known that about the Western Hockey League for a very long time. We always like to take, you know, something that's going on in the world and turn it into our fun discussion. That's why we're asking you about your favorite street games. But it is, it came from a rather interesting story, Greg, out of Tilsonburg, Ontario. What's going on there? Yeah, so this is more than um, Stomp and Tom. Uh, Tilsonburg, didn't even know about that song. Which of our listeners do we have to thank for that? Jeff McKay. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Appreciate that. Uh, Tilsonburg has a bylaw which uh, basically doesn't allow you to put your basketball net at the end of your driveway. You'll see this in neighborhoods all around Winnipeg. Uh, People will set up their basketball hoops for their kids right at the very edge of their property. And actually, technically, I guess they're on city property because uh, there's a certain amount of of a property that that isn't yours that is the the city right-of-way, even though there's no sidewalk, say, on your street. Uh, What's happened is that in Tilsonburg, there's been at least one, if not a couple of incidents of of school buses clipping these basketball hoops. And so they've, you know, the uh, powers that be have said, please move your basketball hoops or, or we're going to fine you. And a lot of parents are saying, no, nope, not moving them. Uh, I want my kids to play. This is the best place for them to play the game sport that they love. And so now we have a old fashioned standoff, so to speak. And, and yeah. I'm trying to figure out if it's actually a situation here in Winnipeg, first of all, do we have a bylaw like that? I think there are probably rules about how far you can have something out on your property because, as you mentioned, Greg, you know that your property technically doesn't go all the way to the street in most cases, right? That would be there'd be part of it maybe on the boulevard or other that's city owned. And so, how much is yours? What is the city? Where can you put that basketball net? And I was texting back and forth with a Winnipegger who works with bus drivers and says that. 
it's actually an issue for many of their drivers that they're seeing this a lot uh, in certain neighborhoods. And that more than that, they also know it's an issue with residential garbage trucks that they you know have to work in and around basketball mm, nets mm-hmm. or other things that might be on the end of the street. So I've, I've got lots of questions about this because I was it never wasn't even on my radar. But when you think about it, I could see how that could be challenging, Brett, for that truck to pull up and, and what kind of issues that might cause, more so even for the garbage truck. I think the school tr- the school bus could maybe just pull a bit farther out from the street in theory, but the garbage truck has to get nice and tight into those cans that are at the end of, of your driveway. Yeah, that's right. Like I just think about... Uh when I used to play basketball, one of my buddies had a hoop. He lived deep in Transcona on a street called Heather Bloom Road, which runs off of McMeans Avenue East. It's almost in the northeast corner of Transcona. And he lived right at the end of this street, uh, which backed onto another street called Millwood Meadow. I don't expect anybody to know this. I'm just trying to paint the picture here. And then beside that street, he backed onto a field. So his, so he put his basketball hoop like right on the corner of the property and it may be extended into the street, but it was such a huge, wide open space that there was no way any vehicle would ever come close to it. Like we we basically had like the equivalent of an entire like professional size half court nice. for to, to play basketball at. So that was no issue. But if you're driving down, a, say, a tighter residential street and there's a basketball hoop hanging out three feet over. Because most of these things, like, they don't just go straight up. They, you know, the, the, board, mm-hmm. the backboard might bend out a little bit. And then the hoop extends three or four feet from the, the pole. So that's hanging out over the street. So I get why. Like, Greg, you mentioned you, you would, it, you'd rather play on a flat surface rather than a sloped driveway. Yes. But... You know, uh, Loren had me convinced... And I was thinking about this, and oh yeah, the garbage trucks, and uh, and the school buses. But I know on my street, those same vehicles have to go around parked cars. Those sure. are a lot bigger; <laughs> they stick sure. out a lot further. So if you can make an accommodation for a parked car on the street, the basketball hoop all of a sudden is something that is detrimental. That's that's the worst situation you have i don't know i i understand laws and rules and all these sorts of things but i hate nitpicky stuff especially when it it takes kids away from doing stuff that they love and when when there's when there's clearly other things that are more intrusive how's that you want to get nitpicky i've found bylaw 6400 amendment j out of 623 i think it goes all the way to z i don't know it's a lot what's the subsection basketball hoops provided they are located no closer than 10 feet to a side or front lot line so they're supposed to be kept 10 feet back Oh, unless there's been changes. This is a 19. This is a change that was made in 1995. And it has a lot of language like notwithstanding in it. So I'm trying to work my way through the bylaw. But it's part of about permitted projections and obstructions in front yards. And the basketball hoop is permitted provided that it's 10 feet back from that lot line. You are a lot lawbreaker, my friend. (laughs) Who, who, who are you talking to? I don't know. I just decided you have this net and this is no, you that mine, we're talking about. No, my kid's net is uh, on the driveway, on the, on half, the driveway halfway yeah. between the, the property line and the garage. And again, we're just talking about this because of the controversy in this town of Tilsonburg. Yeah. I, I have sent a note to the city of Winnipeg saying, is this an issue? Do you get a lot of complaints? And do you actually, in the end, ever find anybody? I'd like to think there's a compromise somewhere along 
the way for everyone. But as this one uh, transport operator says, it is an issue for some of their drivers. Well, feel free to weigh in at 204-780-6868. I mean, yeah, like I, I can't imagine my teenage years without access to basketball hoops. I just knock on people's doors. Hey, can I, can we play on your basketball net? And most of the times they'd say, sure, why not? And I think, you know, like part of the problem is like, we, and we've said this a million times over and I'm guilty of this too. We're all moving so fast. And so you have, you want these kids. We've, it was a complaint for years that we built homes in suburbs with these big backyards and nobody hung out with one another. And now we have more cul-de-sacs and round, you know, circles and, and bays where, in my case, at least in our neighborhood, the kids are way more often out in the front playing, which is what a neighborhood is supposed to look like. And That's in the way I grew up though, too, there are always complaints, though, that the kid, the ball's out in the street and kids running across. And I get the kids have to be safe, but the cars don't need to be going zooming through there like it's a freeway, right? So there has to be a compromise to have the play be where the play used to be. Now I'm sounding old. Two zero four seven eight zero sixty eight sixty eight. Tom, while we're at. Asking you about your favorite street games. And before we introduce our next guests here, Loren, uh, this listener and, his, and uh, their friends were quite brave playing cricket growing up on Lake Point Road with my brothers and neighbors. So I said, cricket? Like, did you play use a real cricket ball? Because they're, r- it's they're hard. hard. Ball. Yeah. yeah. And he says, uh, just once. We ended up denting the neighbor's vehicle, so we switched to tennis balls after that. Well, so. when we were talking about, you know, favorite games of our youth, baseball came up in my mind because I feel like you can look at any space, space of land and figure out what's going to be. Okay, the hydropole will be uh, second base, and yeah. then, you know, the garbage can will be first, and you can find ways to make your diamond, but then you have to do the scouting of... And if the ball goes over there, whose window? <laughs> how, and how quickly can we run away? <laughs> how quickly can we run away? Exactly. <laughs> All right. So keep those coming. We'll pick a winner at 9.15 for those Beer Fest tickets. But right now we want to talk about, you know, we had that police action on Friday where a couple of charges were made at the new Magic Mush shop in Osborne Village just opened last week. And a lot of people are talking about mushrooms in recent days, things like microdosing, etc. So, like, I don't know anything about this stuff, but we luckily we can turn to the experts, the Two Baked Girls podcast, which is both informative and super fun. And the hosts are Cupcake and Ray Ray. Cupcake, good morning. Good morning. And Ray Ray, hello to you. Hi, guys. Morning. So, Ray Ray, we'll start with you. Um... Because, as I mentioned, I don't know anything about this stuff. I've never tried. I've actually been in the room once when somebody was uh, handing out mushrooms. So what are for the uninitiated, what are magic mushrooms? Yeah, so mushrooms are essentially uh, mushrooms. But the difference between magic mushrooms and regular mushrooms are magic mushrooms have psilocybin in them. So that's the active ingredient in the mushroom that kind of makes you hallucinate. Uh, it changes everything, you see different colors, everything like that. And uh, if you use it in small doses or quantities, it can have major health effects or major uh, health benefits for you. So let's set the health benefits aside for just a minute, Ray Ray, because I've been doing a lot of reading on that over the last uh, couple of years, especially as it it pertains to depression, uh, brain injury, Mm -hmm. and uh, that sort of thing. But Cupcake, how do people typically react or behave when they consume mushrooms, let's let's say uh, recreationally? Recreationally, uh, well, they they can hallucinate. Um, (laughs) So you can sometimes see things that aren't there, hear things that aren't there. Sometimes uh, it's just, you know, 
your reality is slightly altered. Uh, it really depends on the amount that you take, so your dose. Uh, if you take a macro dose, you're going to hallucinate a lot more. Uh, if you take just a creative dose, which is something from like half a gram to a gram, uh, you know, you're just going to be a little bit more heightened and more creative, those types of things. And then there's the microdosing again. So Brett referenced off the top the idea that there's this shop in Osborne that had, uh, you know, police activity around it and some and some charges laid and some items seized. And, you know, in, in, if I look at the Health Canada website, it talks about the fact that there are increasing interests in the use of magic mushrooms and that they have clinical trials ongoing and that they understand there's interest out there. But in their words, there are no approved therapeutic products containing psilocybin in Canada or elsewhere. And yet here we are having this talk kind of the same way we did maybe even a decade ago with cannabis about the gray area that some people seem to be operating on. So there's shops in Vancouver. I know there's a handful of them there that sell it. And the police seem to sort of just, I don't, I'm not saying they're pretending they're not there, but they kind of turn that blind eye to the gray area because they're focused on heavier uh, drugs like opioids. And then and we had the situation here in Winnipeg. So Ray Ray, where are people, where would you get these now? I mean, it's because it is illegal, correct? It totally. Yeah, it is. It's still illegal, which yeah. is super crazy because like um, in Oregon, a few years ago, they actually legalized medicinal psilocybin. Hmm. So it gives people the opportunity to use it for therapeutic uses. Um, so, I mean, essentially, just like cannabis, like you were saying 10 years ago, like people are getting uh, mushrooms from friends. There's online vendors that you can get mushrooms from. Um, so it's essentially, it's like the next step that we need to take in legalizing because there are so many medicinal uses for it. And once it becomes legalized, then obviously more research is going to get put into it, just like cannabis. Um, and I think it could be a really good thing for a lot of people out there. And do you, do you microdose, Ray Ray? I, yeah, so I do microdose. I used to be on uh, antidepressants because I deal with depression quite heavy. Um, once uh, somebody actually was like, yeah, I microdose mushrooms. And I thought they were insane because when I was younger, obviously, the only thing I knew about mushrooms was you take mushrooms and you hallucinate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, how could somebody live day to day microdosing mushrooms? Like, that sounds crazy to me. But once you start kind of researching it and realize that you're not taking grams of mushrooms at a time, it's literally like a 0.2 of a gram. And you're, you know, you're taking it daily or just honestly, like I take it, I don't take it daily. I just take it when I need it. There's some days that I wake up and I'm like, okay, like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this day. I take my little microdose and it honestly just levels me out and makes me feel like a normal person. I'm not hallucinating. I'm not seeing magical colors, anything like that. It literally just levels me out and there's no side effects to it, which is insane because when I was on antidepressants, you know, you deal with a whole bunch of different side effects. You have to take it for a month to hopefully see if it's going to help, you know. So I definitely, um, it's definitely been life-changing for me, and I'm going to continue doing it. Uh, Cupcake, uh, this is a whole idea of of, uh, psilocybin and the benefits of it. We've learned so much about THC, CBD, since, uh, you know, cannabis was legalized and leading up to its legalization. Uh, This is maybe a chemical that people or a compound that people are not necessarily familiar with. So what is it and and what are its its impacts and, and uses, shall we say? Uh, like what? What is psilocybin? Correct. Correct. Okay. Well, psilocybin is actually the active ingredient that makes the mushroom kind of magic. So it's what differentiates 
the magic mushrooms from just regular mushrooms. So when we talk about that, is this, I'm trying to follow the ball here. You know, it kind of reminds me when we chatted with you uh, years ago, Cupcake and Ray, Ray, about the different active qualities of um, in cannabis, right? So you might have the THC versus the CBD. So this is more extracting the, is it heavier, the fair point or, or the most effective part of the mushroom and then providing it to people in smaller doses for what might ail them? Yeah, like psilocybin, it converts to psilocybin psilocin in your body which is a chemical that has the psychoactive properties and then like the the benefits of it even macro dosing uh it's obviously best done when you're with a therapist type thing so once it's legalized you know and used for therapeutic benefits uh it'll definitely be more beneficial but uh, people do use it uh to improve creativity to boost physical energy to promote emotional balance increased performance, even like problem-solving tasks. And they use it to treat anxiety, depression, and even addiction. Can you get it? I'm sorry to interrupt. And I don't know, Cupcake or Ray Ray, either of you can answer this. Can you get a medicinal license, though, for this at all? Is there like a workaround? You can get an exemption. Okay. So you would have to go through the government and uh, request an exemption to the law to use it therapeutically or medicinally. And Ray, Ray, before we let you go, as I think about this now, one of my friends uh, was telling me a couple of years ago now that she, I don't think she does anymore, but she said that she was having issues with anxiety and somebody recommended mushrooms. So she didn't do the microdosing. She would just, once every couple of weeks, she'd say that I'd just go home on a Saturday, I'd, I'd, I'd take some, and I would just watch it. In her words, I think that she'd say, I, I would watch the paint melt off of my wall and uh and then it, it was her anxiety would be like managed for two weeks yeah. yeah for honestly um i have some friends that say that as well and we tend to so cupcake and i on our shows we tend to microdose um just enough where we're like laughy and giggly but you honestly notice the difference the next few days it's almost like it's like a reset for your brain and your body which is insane like it makes you feel so um, almost like leveled out and obviously you know we're not um, telling people to go out and like do huge doses of mushrooms right like they do have you can have bad trips off of mushrooms you really have to go slow with it like you would do cannabis um, <clears throat> maybe do your research a little bit as well um, but we've definitely seen huge improvements with us like being able to microdose uh, mushrooms for sure for sure well, Cupcake and Ray Ray, thank you for the insight. Because, yeah. like, uh, I, I'm not, I don't want to be a square. What? Tell us about these uh, shrooms, you see? <laughs> but uh, I don't know any of this stuff. So uh, we really appreciate this. And I suspect that this is not the end anytime soon of this conversation. So thank you for joining us. Thank, thank you so you much for having us. Cupcake and Ray Ray, they are the Two Bait Girls podcast. And you can find them on social media under that handle. And again, it's super informative, lots of fun. And they uh, they bring they they let you you know for a lot of us these are like I've stayed away from drugs because I've had bad experiences with yes. marijuana sure. yeah. and I get addicted to things but to learn to know now that shrooms are not just that there's all these benefits to it I'm I'm curious the worst trips and the worst bad reactions I've had in my life have been prescribed prescribed medicines yeah. things that are supposed to help me. With depression in particular. Well, you talked, she referenced it there, right? About the idea that you have some sort of 
side effects that come with all of these things. And so, you know, th- th- I think we have some learning to do. We're going to work throughout the day to talk to police, to talk to lawyers, to talk to even Health Canada if we can about, you know, the this is happening. What's the good? What's the bad? What's the ugly with it all, right? And and I think that's worth the discussion. There's there's cancer patients out there I know fighting for the right to use this for their pain management. Um, there's all sorts of things that people say it's helping them for. There can be harm too. We get that, but it's all part of the conversation. What does this unnamed listener have for us? Not sure if anyone mentioned skipping. Yes, we did. But the long rope with the two enders, there would be four or five of us and we could skip for hours. I never did get the hang of double Dutch or I'd not heard of this dolly Dutch, which is backwards double Dutch. Can't remember any of the songs we sang uh, skipping, but there were many. Thank you for that. Dolly Dutch. Dolly Dutch. Backwards double Dutch. Never heard of that. I was never, this might surprise you, but I was never particularly skilled or effective with a jump rope. You're too tall. I did. Well, as a, for a solo, I did always have a hard time finding a rope that was like long enough for my height. Because uh, I guess when I was a kid, they had kid sized jump ropes. Sure. And, and then as an adult, I, well, I think I might have tried it once at a gym. But I, I think actually when, when, when others, when it was like I was in the middle and there were two people holding the rope, I seemed to be okay. When did it change from a jump, from a skipping rope to a jump rope? Yeah, I guess it was skipping rope when I was a kid. Yeah, but jump rope for heart. Do they still do that? Is yeah, that yeah. why? I, I just say it. I just, it's interesting. The terminology sort of changed. Yeah, do people right. still skip? Like, have you actually seen that out in a playground lately? Like uh, the plastic in them is probably illegal. Probably not allowed to make them anymore. <laughs> probably has lead paint on them or something. Because some kid ate a skipping rope one time, and so they had to ban it. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Congratulations to another M, Marius, Tracy Marius, that is, who picks up the tickets for Brit Floyd. Coming to Winnipeg on August 5th at the Burt. And we asked the question, celebrating how many years of Dark Side of the Moon, the landmark album? 50. 50 years since Dark Side of the Moon came out. So congratulations to Tracy. And again, tickets go on sale Friday, but the pre-sale starts today at 10 and goes until tomorrow night at 10. The pre-sale code is CJOB at Ticketmaster.ca. So we want to continue the chat now. Uh, we just talked about mushrooms last half hour, and we wanted to talk about that because of the police action that was happening on Friday in Osborne Village with that new shop that opened. And I got to admit, until recently, mushrooms and the effects, the potential positive effects that these and the benefits, not something I ever thought of. And this situation out of Tillisburg, Ontario, I... I don't think I have once ever thought that basketball hoop looks like it's sticking too far out into the street. But as always, when things pop up, you kind of sit back and go, oh, well, maybe there's something there or is there? Well, you know, if you put your curmudgeon hat on, I suppose you you could go down that road. It's sort of like when I drive on Arlington between Portage Avenue and Notre Dame. There's really only one lane there. But sometimes people like to treat it as two lanes in each direction. Yeah. And if it suits me, I'll create two lanes. If it doesn't suit me, I'll drive in the middle <laughs> and make sure, yeah, make sure that everybody else <laughs> treats it like one lane. It all depends on the mood that I'm in. And I think uh, that's the, the same thing with, with this sort of thing, Loren. You know, you might see it and go, oh, man, you shouldn't have that hoop there. This is, you know, this is a roadway. 
but then maybe later on in life you get kids and you remember what it's like to be a kid and it's great to see kids playing out on the street and we should be encouraging more of that. So where do you stand on it and, and where do our listeners stand? I you know, referenced earlier this idea that for years we've been lamenting the fact that we built neighborhoods that shove us all in the backyards. The, the backyard and the big backyard was the most coveted thing with the fence around it. I have one of those. And I can honestly tell you we spend way more time sitting in the front yard on our front steps because we have it, we live on a circle watching all the kids play than we ever have in the backyard. And that's the way neighborhoods of your <laughs> to, to be the old person shaking hand at cloud. You know, that's the way the neighborhoods were supposed to be built, that we're a community together. And so I think there would be pushback on the idea that the basketball net couldn't be a community use and that there would be, you know, drivers or other that would be upset about it. But I do get it. So I do think there has to be a compromise somewhere. But I think what you want are those neighborhoods where you see people out and you have, you have sidewalks, you know, we've created too many neighborhoods without sidewalks. So people are forced onto the streets. And so we have to work to get along a little bit better, but I like, I way rather see busy front steps than back. So we are asking this because in Tillisburg, Ontario, which is in southwestern Ontario, they're they're moving to enforce a bylaw to get, get your basketball hoop back so it's not leaning out into the road because a school bus clipped one. And we've got some a couple like a, a yin and yang situation here where Rob on one hand says, Hey, I'm all for keeping kids active. But there are challenges, particularly for tall vehicles and hoops hanging into the roadway. I was pulling a travel trailer and caught the hoop with the trailer. Damage to my trailer and to the hoop. Who's liable for damages in that scenario? Yeah, that's a good question. One of our listeners also texted in with a similar complaint and a similar comment, sort of all in favor of doing what we need to do to keep our kids active. Drives a cement truck and says you're not expecting those hoops to be there. Says he's clipped basketball hoops with his mirror in the past and so that they can be problematic but then on the other side Alden's uh on the other side of the fence so to speak Loren I'm fascinated how many people actually have had first-hand experience of uh hitting some of these things you've just texted to say that you'd be surprised how many snow graders clip things that are in the way and then we have Alden who said if having a basketball hoop hanging a little bit over the street is that big of a deal that garbage trucks or school buses, et cetera, have to complain about it, I think we need to reevaluate what really matters and what we're getting upset about. I'm sure people are not putting their garbage bins directly underneath the basketball hoop. So if you need to make a two second turn to go around it, just do it. Not that big of a deal, they say. Is there any statistics showing someone being injured or hurt for this? Because it seems a bit ridiculous that you can't just go around. So we've got an ask into the city. I was, this is a story out of Ontario, but we have an ask into the city as to whether or not they get complaints about this. If they hear from drivers or bus drivers or garbage truck drivers about concerns about toys that we have in our yard hanging over the street and, and whether or not it really is an issue or more just an anecdotal, what, anecdotal one we're hearing of this morning. So again, you can continue to weigh in at 204-780-6868. And then that also inspired a conversation this morning for which we are going to soon give away a pair of tickets for Flatlanders Beer Fest. Your favorite street games. 
either growing up or maybe something you play with your kids. But what does Dennis have to say? Well, he sort of combines the two topics here, Brad. He says, good morning, guys. Heard your chat about hoops on the streets. Totally agree. In fact, we need more hoops and hockey on the streets, not less. There's no better growing up experience than playing with your buddies near your home. In my days, 60s and 70s, it was ball hockey on quiet dead end Napan Avenue. A few doors from our place was the freeway. That was Maryland Street. Car was the best word to have in our vocabularies. <laughs> Car. Is that universal, do you think? Car. Yeah, Wayne's World, I think, made it more universal. In my world, we used headlights. I don't know if that was a thing that my dad. Like you'd yell like, that you saw them coming? Yeah, headlights, yeah. headlights. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, so I don't know. I think it was my dad that started that, but uh, that was... That was the one we used in in our neighborhood for sure, but uh, car seems to be way more popular. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb as we listen to some Big Gun by ACDC. I imagine that's probably a similar context as Love Gun by Kiss as we were discussing earlier, but that's another discussion all together. Right now we're asking you for a chance to win two tickets for Flatlanders Beer Fest June 2nd and 3rd at Canada Life Centre to tell us about your favorite street games. And uh, Greg Kellyanne, for example, I mean, EK, that's Kind of adjacent to where you are? Yeah, yeah more or less. Absolutely. Neighborhood kids would uh, play hide and seek. The big tree on the corner was home base. One, two, three, home free. Yes, a time when all the parents knew each other and watched out for all the kids. We knew which yards were safe places and played until the street lights came on. Yes, home tree is still there and brings back great memories. It's incredible how many things translate. There's no written instructions. For these games, there's no, there was no internet, but we played the games so similarly, and I was, my heart warmed when we got the text to say one of our listeners used headlights in Transcona once upon a time <laughs> until Wayne's World ruined it. <laughs> and said car when there's a car coming, and this is uh, this is another example where it's it's always tough to pick one story. Uh, Loren's going to read the winning winning entry here in a moment, but uh, Jason uh, with a solid runner up here who says when I was a kid, street hockey ruled the neighborhood. All the kids in the neighborhood trained and played year round for one event. Jubilee used to have a block party every year where the whole street was closed down. By late afternoon, things were set up for the annual three-on-three hockey tournament. It came complete with the nets, a homemade scoreboard hung in a tree on the boulevard. (laughs) And due to the involvement of community policing for the event, the police car siren was utilized as her goal. We played quick 10-minute games, hoping to advance to get to play for the coveted P Mixed League Cup. It was an old bowling trophy from the park alleys (laughs) on Osborne. So the community and crowd really got into it. And even though my friends and I never got to hoist the cup for a few minutes each summer, we felt like the heroes we idealized, idolized on television. Jason, that's really good. And again, it's tough to, uh, that we can only pick one. But Loren, Jerry had the three of us in stitches. I think we can all <laughs> see this happening in our own lives, maybe. So Jerry says, when we were kids, we played on the parking lot at AMP. We played football when I kicked the ball on the roof, so we then had to borrow a long ladder from our neighborhoods. I was the one that put it on the roof, so I go get it up on the roof. My dad calls us all for supper. My brother takes the ladder down, and I'm yelling to my dad when he finally sees me 
And my brother had to come back and get me down. Oh boy, was he in <clears throat> caca. He left me up there for half an hour. I was 12. He was 17. <laughs> Big brothers are the best. <laughs> oh, I love it. I just love it. I mean, like, I get that that sucks, but that is a classic. You can't not. When somebody's up on a roof, you do have to take that ladder away just for a bit. <laughs> just for a bit. Yeah. And, and, and you're not wrong. I mean, at 12 years old, 30 minutes probably didn't feel like an eternity. Like if he was, say, five years old, it would have felt like forever. But at 12, still the panic. How do I get down? Do I do I jump? Do I, One thing we forgot to ask Jerry was how high was this roof? But yeah, would you be looking for like a drain pipe to crawl down or a door that you can, you know, weasel, your, a hatch you can crawl down through? Yeah. I'm interested to know what the trust level was between those brothers moving forward from that experience. You know, usually you count on your older brother to to help you out, to yep. pick you up when you're down. Exact opposite situation here. You're the eldest brother, are you not? I am. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think I endorse this action? <laughs> oh, come on. The little brothers. The little brothers. We should actually make this a having coffee someday. The things, the tricks you played on your siblings. Yeah. And then debate in which order are the siblings the worst. <laughs> You know, first, second, third. Not the oldest, the, eh, Loren? Well, I'm the second. So, mm -hmm. no, I wouldn't say any of them are the worst. I think there's traits, though, that are can be associated with siblings. Are you, you the know? middle kid? There's four of us, so I'm second. Sort so, of. You're pseudo-middle yeah. kid. See, you're trying I mean, to like, find I'm, conciliation. Yeah, but I'm also like the youngest girl, but older sister. You know, but I'm middle, but not the middle one, like the other middle one. Oh, God. <laughs> you know? <laughs> now we want to talk about how in June of 2021, somebody in Canada made a pretty good decision on spending $5 on what was ultimately a work of art painted by one of the greatest rock stars of all time. Let's go back in time with Global's Robin Gill. Before David Bowie shot to fame as a rock star, he studied art and design. When he wasn't writing music, he painted in his spare time. This piece, called D-Head 46, is part of a series known as Deadhead, produced in the 1990s, and it's being auctioned off in Toronto. In a case like this, of course, it's very exciting because it has that, uh, obviously, that, that greater appeal because he is, a, uh, of course, a well-known cultural, uh, cultural figure. An Ontario woman who wishes to remain anonymous paid five bucks for it at a donation centre. It's expected to fetch up to 12000 or more. The record for, for a painting by David Bowie is another D-head, and that sold for about 32000 American. So how much did that painting ultimately sell for? Well, let, let's ask the last voice you heard in that clip. Rob Cowley joins us here in the store. Good morning, Rob. Good morning. How also, oh, very well. Welcome to Winnipeg. Also in studio with us, Lydia Abbott, both of Cowley Abbott Fine Auctioneers. Good morning, Lydia. Good morning. So we'll find out what that Bowie uh, D head sold for in a moment. Uh, but what brings you to our city, Lydia? Well, we're here. Um, we're really excited to be sharing with everyone the um, that we'll be selling uh, a major collection of Warhol prints of Queen Elizabeth II. Um, and we're doing that to support um, the Winnipeg Art Gallery. They're um, selling them to create an endowment fund to collect additional works um, 
uh, currently, and they're precisely looking at contemporary Indigenous art, which is really incredible. Um, so in our June 8th auction, we're having a live auction, and there'll be a number of artworks, um, over 100 artworks in that sale, and one lot will be four prints uh, by Andy Warhol, and we're really excited about it. So these prints by Warhol, how rare would they be? What's their value? Uh, we have the estimate for the set of four um, at seven hundred to nine hundred thousand. Uh, just actually mm-hmm. last year, um, a similar set—I mean, of, of the same edition—sold um, in the U.S. for about one point two million, which is quite a lot of money. Um, and we're seeing, you know, just by <laughs> having them in our sale currently, we have really international interest in them. Mm. So we're seeing bidders registering from all over, and it's really, really exciting time. You mentioned a set of four, um, Rob. Is that? what's up for auction or is there several sets or can you get individuals like how would it work so uh, when warhol produced them in 1985 it was part of the what he called the reigning queens um okay um edition and so he actually produced it was four different queens queen elizabeth and then actually three other sitting queens globally and so what is rare actually is to have four he produced four of each queen uh, they're different colors and uh, different styles and what is rare is to have four of the same offered at the same time. Individuals have sold for individuals from this set have sold for three and four hundred thousand US. And so this is a rare case. Actually, it was a Winnipeg collector who went out and collected the four different prints um, individually from a West Coast gallery and put them together to form this set of four. And so it is a rarity um, to, to find a full set of four at auction at any time. And Rob, and we'll just get you to lean just a touch closer to the microphone, if you could, Rob. The Bowie painting, what did that sell for? That, after a lot of interest internationally, the story took off. Um, it sold for $108,000, which is wow. a global record mm-hmm. for, for David Bowie's work. And in fact, our June 8th auction includes another portrait by Bowie, this one of Trent Reznor uh, from Nine Inch Nails, who we toured with and recorded with. So in a way, it's an even you know more exciting in a way. The, the subject matter is it's very personal for, uh, for David Bowie, someone he knew very well. So I was just lamenting the fact that we were talking about, you know, this $5 D head uh, mm-hmm. painted by one of my favorite artists of all time and clearly an artist on, on many levels, David Bowie. But the whole idea that in that same story, you were talking about a painting someone had found of a group of seven. We didn't play that part mm-hmm. of it, but uh, how many... Of these paintings, Lydia, have people walked by at garage sales or estate sales or maybe even in their own home, their grandparents' home, and not really realized the value of what's been hanging on the wall at uh, at grandpa's place for the last decade or more? You know, it does happen all the time. And I think that's, uh, you know, at a time when people are going to more garage sales and looking around. And I mean, to think... This Bowie painting was found in a really a landfill shop. Like it was on it was its last chance, you know, to be mm-hmm. taken home by someone before it was going to be disposed of. And it was signed on the back and everything. So it happens. Um, I mean, we do these appraisal days, we do valuations across the country, we travel for them. And, you know, there's a lot of people that really don't know what they have. And they come to the the experts and, you know, maybe someone didn't sign something so legibly, but we we know the signature, right? So you, as soon as they take it, out, take it out, we go, wow, could it be? And Rob and I look at each other and it's happened. Mm-hmm. We've sold works at auction um, by, you know, someone thought, oh, I also have this, you know, painting by, and a lot of listeners might know William Curlick, a, a really famous artist from the prairies. And, um, you know, someone pulled it out of their bag and said, oh, you know, they had a bunch of religious works and then showed us this one thinking this would be the one we would definitely say no to. And it was, you know, $40,000. Wow. So, yeah, it does happen. It does mm-hmm. happen. And I think that's 
really exciting to, to, to share that and, and to have those results at auction. So if you two go to a dinner party, Rob, or just, you know, one of you, does that <laughs> yeah. mean you're constantly being asked to come stare at like, you yeah. know, like, check this out. I mean, I'm sure sometimes you're, you're, you have those surprises where you're like, wow, what a find. But there has to also be a lot of, uh, no, that's no good. There, <laughs> there is. Yeah. I, which is, it's, I mean, for us, quite honestly, what we love about this industry and the work for Lydia and I and our team is the detective work. You know, you do so much research and you do find things all the time. You find these incredible works by these artists that have been lost to time sometimes. But you're right. We do end up in many social situations where people say, you know what I've got? And then you're, of course, the bearer of bad news because... Mm. The nest egg that their aunt left them 30 years ago doesn't have a market anymore or, yeah. or maybe a poster, you know, maybe a reproduction of a famous work. So. Or they got told the story of what it was, <laughs> yes, right. right? And then they discover, I'm thinking of, there's a modern family scene where he thinks he has an original sketch by uh, Disney, <laughs> That's Walt right. himself, yeah. and, right? And then it's like, oh boy, you yeah. got take, taken in. <laughs> it does happen, unfortunately. Our guests are Rob Cowley and Lin- Lydia Abbott of Abbott Cowley, Cowley Abbott, Canada's art auctioneers. And uh, if you want to see the, the aforementioned painting uh, that David Bowie did of Trent Reznor, it's on their website, cowleyabbott.ca. But um, you have, Lydia, 10 commandments of valuing art. Can you perhaps share a few of them? Yeah. I mean, obviously, when we look at uh, an artwork that someone brings to us, we really what's most important is can we identify the artist? And that's going to be the number one um, search that we do, but you know, there's the artist, the artist, the subject. You know, if we look at something like um, the Trent Reznor painting, like it was a, a good friend of his, and that makes it valuable to you, an identifiable subject. Um, we look at the medium: was it a painting? Was it a print? Was it a, a, a work on paper? Obviously, it, conventionally, like paintings are worth more than a sketch would be, like a small, like a print, as well. Um, you know, we look at the size of the work. Uh, we look at the association was it a group of seven members? Did they paint with them? Um, and also the provenance, like who owned it? You know, if it was something that an artist actually owned, or um, you know, it comes from a special collection, that's going to make it more valuable too. So there's really a number, the period, a lot of things that we look at. We call them the Ten Commandments just because they kind of come together and create an equation that we could then say, ah, okay, based on other works, this is what it's valued at. I'm, curi- we, yeah. I'm curious about this Banksy uh, individual. Mm-hmm. Um, do we know who this person is, first and foremost? How does their art get into auction? Mm-hmm. And has Banksy been good or bad for for the art collecting world? We don't know who it is. I mean, there's been theories over the years about different artists and things like that. I don't think it's ever been confirmed. Um, in our opinion, it's great um, because it's, you know, it, it's for us in the art world, you find that the art world often is is something that people have apprehension around. They feel like they don't belong in it. They feel like they don't understand why something is worth something. Um, and so with Banksy, where it's, it's highly accessible, just like Warhol is, where people know the imagery and there's a lot of excitement around kind of the secrecy. Obviously, the sale at, you know, we were talking earlier um, off the air, the the sale in uh of his work at auction, which then shredded moments after it was sold. An event like that, although (laughs) very, very rare, um, it creates a lot of conversation. And for us, that's a huge part of what we do. They do come up at auction. Uh, Limited edition prints come up. But also there have been cases where literally a piece of a wall is removed from the side of a building and it's sold. Uh, be with a Banksy on it, where he mm-hmm. may have may have uh, created a work in an alleyway, and a part of the wall is removed and it's sold at auction. Um, and so, again, it's just it, it it kind of breaks the barriers in terms of what is known as traditional auction and traditional gallery sales. And so, for that, that's always exciting for us. You just mentioned something there, Rob. The idea that sometimes you know art 
and the art world might not feel accessible. And yet we all start very early on in our lives, you know, coloring and drawing Mm -hmm. and and having our art classes. How do we change that idea that what we learn as kids, you know, whether it's just the rainbows we drew uh, as we grow older to become a bit more, I don't, I mean, good at art. I mean, good at appreciating art, no matter what form it might come in. How do we get ourselves down that road? Well, and I I don't think it's anyone's fault. I think education has changed so much. You know, art has been removed from a lot of education. I think that's one of the biggest issues we find is that people don't have an entry point. And oftentimes with us, they feel apprehension because they see value attached and they feel like they don't belong, that they shouldn't be, you know, in the same room or talking with us. But I mean, even in our business, we try very hard to make, to do events in the gallery in Toronto and even through our travels, you know, during our valuation days and the general public to bring in what they have, even if it might be a poster. Because for us, it's education, but it's also really about, you know, for us, we really take it very seriously about, um, you know, providing education. And I think it's just, you know, you see paint nights and things like that, where I think more and more there's been more people coming back to art. And it's so important. I mean, expression, creative expression, as, as you said, it's, you know, one of the earliest one of the earliest forms of expression, you know, before we even form words, we're, you know, expressing ourselves through imagery. And it is sad in many ways, you know, for, a, you know, where you see that, where people feel that apprehension because the business of art gets in the way. But uh, we certainly try. And we encourage clients to come to the previews, our, our auction previews in Toronto are on now, and to go to exhibitions at, uh, at galleries and, and ask questions. You know, you'll be amazed how many times, you know, the people working in those places are just waiting for someone to ask. You know, the most, the, our favorite time of year is this year during our previews because we just get, like right now, we get to talk about the art and what we found over the last six months. And before we let you go, Lydia, you were talking mm-hmm. about people uh, say, is this painting worth anything? Have you ever been looked at something and thought, oh my gosh, look at what they have, look at what they don't know they have and thought, oh, that, I don't really think that's a big deal, but uh, we'll take it, uh, <laughs> we'll take care of it for you. Oh yeah. Well, no, you know, part of it is with all the knowledge we've gathered over the years and it has been 20 years that Rob and I have individually been in the business and we really can say it is great sharing it with people and to let them know, like, I mean, we, when they come and bring something to us, um, we really do explain why something's valuable, you know, whether it is or isn't. And, uh, yeah, no, I think we're, you know, selling, selling the work, if we can sell it on behalf of the client and make them some money and create a great result, that's fantastic. But some of it is just imparting the knowledge onto someone. And we really enjoy that aspect. So I will say, you know, it's always amazing when we can sell it and 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 do that and share it with everyone. But sometimes, you know, hey, it's just uh, it's just sharing the the fun stories and and we're pleased to just provide. I mean, it, we do this complimentary the service our valuation. So someone oh. can e- even email us info at kaoliaba.ca. Hey, you know what? What is this worth? Like what I do you could think? send you my oh, image yeah. of the blue boy right now. From you my could do it right now to that email address. The world has, and I doubt yeah. it's worth anything. <laughs> but I that's showed, okay. I you might have the original. You know, hey. Yeah, right. <laughs> I just showed Rob a picture uh, of a painting uh, that hangs in my house. I got from my grandpa. So we'll, <laughs> did Rob shake we'll his head? See, we'll see if I. We'll, we'll <laughs> find out on the people. other side if I'm coming back to work tomorrow. CowleyAbbott.ca is the website. Canada's art auctioneers. Our guests. Rob Cowley and Lydia Abbott, thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate this. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks for having us.